Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Al-Qaeda from Afghanistan and globally is in a much stronger position today than it was prior to 9-11. Prior to 9-11, Al-Qaeda really only had a major base in one area in Afghanistan. Now it's throughout the Middle East, throughout all of Africa, like the Sahel and West Africa, not just North Africa as it was in the early 2000s. It has its faults. It has its problems. But it's been adaptive, and I only see them growing stronger as the West seeks to disengage from this fight and focus on Russia and China, which I totally understand. Those are key issues, but we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Bill Raggio is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the editor of the Foundation's Long War Journal which provides original reporting and analysis on the global war on terror. Bill has served in the U.S. Army and the New Jersey National Guard. He joins me today to talk about Afghanistan and the CT situation there one year after the Taliban takeover. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Bill, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. It's an honor to have you on the show. Michael, the honor is all mine. It truly is an honor and a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak to you about these important issues. So thanks for joining us to talk about Afghanistan and the CT fight there one year after the Taliban regained control of the country and after the full withdrawal of the U.S. presence from the country. There's lots to talk about here, as you know, including 
a report that just came out from the Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee on the withdrawal itself, recent targeted killing of the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman Zawahiri, and a recent statement from the White House about the terrorist threat emanating from Afghanistan. So lots, lots to talk about. But before we get into kind of where things stand today in Afghanistan, I want to rewind to last year. And I'd love to have you, Bill, walk us through your understanding, your take, your thoughts on how we got from President Biden's decision in April of last year to withdraw all U.S. combat forces from Afghanistan to a collapse of the Afghan government, a Taliban takeover of the country, and a chaotic and deadly end to our presence there. Go back and say again that the Republicans in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, led by Congressman Mike McCall, who I have deep respect for, just released a report that is sharply critical of the policy process, particularly at the State Department, and interestingly, not so critical in the performance of the intelligence community, which surprised me a little bit. But what's your take on what happened, what went wrong? Yeah, Michael, I think, you know, first of all, I, I abhor the, the partisan uh, food fights over issues like Afghanistan, because the reality is, is this was a failure that was two decades in the making and a, a bipartisan failure at that. And I'm going to very briefly go through the Bush administration after overthrowing the Taliban. The fault wasn't not negotiating with the Taliban. The Taliban was always going to support al-Qaeda. It sacrificed its Islamic emirate of Afghanistan to shelter bin Laden and others post 9-11. So that was destined to happen. The Its failures was standing up an Afghan government and military that were not appropriately made for Afghanistan, centralized control over both, both organizations. And then I would not dealing with Pakistan properly, and then also diverting resources to the war in Iraq and making Afghanistan the forgotten war. In the Under the Obama administration, Afghanistan became the good war, but there was a surge that was kneecapped, as well as it opened up negotiations with the Taliban. Again, no effort to to deal with Pakistan. The Trump administration cut off Pakistan, all aid from Pakistan, and talked tough. But then within eight months, began talks with the Taliban and signed the Doha deal, which was an absolute disaster. This led to the, the seeds of, of the failure. Look, and I began tracking the Taliban in 2014 when the U.S. ended its transition from a military operation to a train, advise, and assist to the Afghans. I've recognized this, the flaw in the counterinsurgency strategy, or the um, which was, we'll give the Taliban the rural areas and we'll defend the, the urban areas or the built up or the important districts is what they call them. The Taliban said, hey, that's just fine. We'll go with this. So this began under the 2014, under the Obama administration. The Taliban slowly start taking up territory, taking over territory or making territory contested. We have up until the, the date of the deal is signed, then the Taliban are touting this deal as a victory. It there were I signed car agreement, you know, car loan agreements and insurance documents that were longer than this Doha agreement, three and a third pages, where a, a much of the text is written in a, in the form where it says the Taliban, which calls itself the Islamic Emirate, but we don't recognize that's repeated like 12 or 15 times in a three and a half page document. Taking up much of the three and a half pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think if I counted it, I think I wound up saying that took about a half a page, Michael. I just like, 
there was not, no conditions put on the Taliban. It was just a it was a fanciful agreement. The Biden administration. So that that's what we have to understand. This was and once the Obama administration decided that the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan. This is where all of our failure began, right? This is the, the policy becomes: let's find a way to leave. How do we leave? Well, we can't leave if Al Qaeda is strong in Afghanistan. We can't leave if the Taliban Al Qaeda relationship is strong. Those things, both of those things, were true. But we were told by successive administrations that they weren't true. That was the excuse to leave. Remember, President Biden, when he announces withdrawal, he says Al Qaeda is done. Quote: It done. You know, why do we need to remain in Afghanistan? Less than a year later, we kill Amin al-Zawahiri, the head of al-Qaeda there. But the back to, you know, the I'm sorry if I, you know, kind of went a little long here, Michael, but like it's it's 20 years of failure of bad policy that, that led up to this. I can't just blame President Biden, although he shoulders a large part of the blame here because he ultimately made the decision to leave. The decision to leave, you know, he... The National Security Council just issued a, a, a or, or there was a memo, memo leaked. I don't know if it's official now, but the Axios reported it. And it, their defense of the, the policy in Afghanistan was, let's blame Donald Trump because he signed the deal. The Obama administration was, you know, they gave us a false choice. Either we have to ramp up U.S. forces in Afghanistan to fight the Taliban or we can leave. Right. And, and that was untrue. There was a third way. They chose not to mention it or take it. What we needed to do was to support the Afghan government by having it consolidate its lines in Afghanistan, abandon the South and East, reorganize its military to fight the Afghan way, not the American way. That's a whole podcast in itself, that discussion. And, you know, basically form Northern Alliance 2.0, have them manage territory they can manage and, and you know, take the fight to the Taliban, you know, in the contested areas in and around Kabul and in, in the South and East. But instead, the, the Biden administration just pulls out. And he doesn't just, there's no phased withdrawal here to give the Afghans a chance to transition to, to an Afghan way. Within three and a half months of announcing the withdrawal, the last U.S. Tr soldier leaves Afghanistan. Bagram, the key node for operation, air operations and in Afghanistan, is closed down by the beginning of July, about, a, I believe it was about a month and a half after withdrawal is announced. And not only did the U.S. leave, it shut off the lights without even telling the Afghans there that we were leaving. The Trump administration set the conditions to weaken the Afghan government to allow the Taliban to issue a whisper campaign saying the Americans are leaving. The Biden administration was merely struck the last few nails in the coffin by announcing withdrawal and then doing it in a manner that ensured the Afghan government was going to collapse. And one more quick story here. I always tell this. When I talk to Afghan officials, when Trump signed the deal, before Biden was elected, after he was elected, before he, he announced withdrawal and immediately – and a couple months, about a month prior to the withdrawal, to the full withdrawal at the end of August, I talked to them and I told them, you need to find your own way. You need to reorganize. You need to do these things. The Americans are leaving. And here's what they told me to a man. These would be um, – in 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 the defense uh, Afghan defense department in their interior ministry uh presidential advisors ambassadors these are the people I was speaking to and their their response was always this we were assured by and you could fill in the blank here the US state department the department of defense CIA by administration officials that the US wasn't leaving they're going to be here for us this is a lot of politics but it's ultimately the US will back us they, didn't, they never internalized that the U.S. Which was going to withdraw. The speed in which the U.S. withdrawal didn't even give them a chance 
to see what was happening and to internalize this and reorganize. And that's, you know, in, in a five-minute nutshell, that's, that's what happened in Afghanistan. Okay, Bill, let's jump back to the present here, and let's start with the Taliban's rule of the country. number of observers promised us a more tolerant Taliban. They actually called it Taliban 2.0. A year in now, how does this Taliban rule compare to the group's governance prior to 2001? So Taliban 2.0 was always Taliban 1.0. When you analyze who the top leaders of the Taliban's so-called interim government, a year later, they have an interim, the interim government is the government. About 50 to 60% of them were leaders of the Taliban in prior to, just prior to 9-11. They may have switched around positions. And then other important officials like the Taliban's two deputy emirs, Surajuddin Haqqani and Mullah Yaqub. Surajuddin was the son of Jalaluddin Haqqani, who was a key minister within the Taliban government. And Mullah Yaqub also, of course, is the son of Mullah Omar, the founder and first emir of the Taliban. That's what we're looking at. So again, Taliban 2.0 is Taliban 1.0. They are forcing women to go out escorted. Women can't work. Women have to cover up. Girls can't go to school. People are being beaten, stoned for things like adultery. It's it's essentially the, the Taliban of, pre, of Afghanistan of pre-9-11. The Taliban is a little bit more slick on things like social media and has news organizations. And it seems to be a little bit more permissive with things like cell phones, although they do confiscate these people. And I think there's a reason for that, by the way, Michael. I think they like people to have cell phones because then if they do want to go after them, they can see what they've been looking at on social media and things like who they're talking to, get information on them to see if they're, you know, anti-Taliban resistance or something, or, or just people they don't like. So there's no change, you know, tell again, I, you know, meet the, the new Taliban, same as the old Taliban. How about their effectiveness, their efficacy in dealing with Afghanistan's problems, the issues the Afghan people face every day? The Taliban's primary concern is ruling Afghanistan and imposing its harsh version of Sharia or Islamic law. Everything else is secondary to that. The Afghan people, they're a large number, I believe it's over 50% have food insecurity. There's shortages of medicine. There's a drought and famine going on in Afghanistan. Sure, the Taliban tries to deal with these issues, but its number one priority is Taliban control. And that is military control, you know, policing, securing the country, its borders, and propping up a Taliban regime. Everything is secondary to that. And the Afghan people today are suffering for this. The people that the the Zalme Khalizades, who was the U.S. United States negotiator with the Taliban, the, the special representative for Afghanistan's reconstruction. He signed that that Doha deal under the Trump administration and to this day is still coming out flacking for the Taliban saying we should be negotiating with them. They told us that the Taliban would moderate, the moderate Taliban, things like this. And I always said, show me a moderate Taliban. And if you think that someone like Mullah Baradar, who was on the negotiating team, this was a guy who, there's a great New York Times article where it mentions how he had to draw the shades in Doha because he couldn't look at the women at the pool and how he wouldn't, you know, was insisted on not having women in the room when they're negotiating or having hallways cleared. That's what a moderate Taliban looks yeah. like. Yeah. Baradar is a killer. 
He's an awful person. He's just one that was willing to sit down with Americans in order to get the U.S. withdraw. Afghanistan is in, you know, as bad as the United States mismanaged and NATO mismanaged Afghanistan. The Afghan people didn't have to live under the deprivations of the Taliban as they have the last past year. And, um, you know, this is part of the moral failure of Afghanistan, of the U.S. leaving Afghanistan. Is the Taliban bill in control of the entire country? Are there parts of the country they don't control? Do they face an insurgency from a you know select group of former government officials? What's going on on that front? Yeah, I would describe Afghanistan as being 100% Taliban controlled at this moment. There is a nascent insurgency that is beginning. The one group that seems to be doing the bulk of the fighting is, is called the National Resistance Front. It is led by Ahmad Massoud, who's the son of Ahmad Shah Massoud. He was the head of the Northern Alliance prior to 9-11. Al-Qaeda killed him on September 9th, 2001, two days prior to 9-11. They killed him because they recognized and did it, obviously, with the bidding of the Taliban. They sent in a news crew who was actual, who were actually members of Al-Qaeda who had suicide or had a bomb inside the camera. So it's led by the son of, of Masood. It's, I'm starting to actually map this out right now, Michael. It's, it's kind of interesting seeing, and it, it's certainly not surprising to me who's followed Afghanistan all these years. There's, there's some resistance that is in Panjshir and then in some surrounding districts and neighboring provinces, primarily Takar, Baglan, and it looks like Kapisa and perhaps Parwan as well. It's really difficult right now to get information out of Afghanistan. Prior to the U.S. withdrawal, you at least had foreign press. I t- always took what the Taliban said about controlling and contesting districts very seriously because we could usually verify that in the press. And then you would have what the Afghan government or the U.S. military or NATO said. And you could put all this together. And you also had a vibrant Afghan press prior to U.S. withdrawal. That's all gone now. Now you have what the National Resistance Front is saying and some other smaller groups, which I'm told are primarily smaller groups are seem to be a – how do I put this delicately, a, a scam to raise money, to extract money from people. But the National Resistance Front certainly is fighting. I think that is. But right now, you know, it's possible they contest a couple of districts. They reportedly have some bases in some districts. And I think by my technical definition, that means they control some t- remote territory, as remote as it is. They're really launching guerrilla attacks against the against Taliban military forces, convoys, or if the Taliban try to venture in areas where their bases are, they'll strike hard. These are Panjshir is a very mountainous uh, central region of Afghanistan. It's easy to launch to be a mountain guerrilla, so to speak. But you know, again, their reach is very narrow at this point. I describe it as nascent. Do you do you know if they're getting any outside support? So the U.S. State Department about a month ago issued a statement saying this was after some fighting between the two groups, you know, saying the U.S. State Department doesn't condone violent resistance to the Taliban or and it suggested that the parties should sit down and talk because, you know, negotiations, Michael, work so <laughs> work well, so well with the Taliban, <laughs> with the Taliban. Right. We should trust them to to to, to negotiate in good faith with a nascent resistance group who the Taliban absolutely hate. So the U.S. government's official policy is to not support them. Whether the CIA is providing some support, I don't, I can't answer that question. I have no information that they are. 
It's very I doubt, likely. I doubt that, it. I doubt it. Given given where U.S. policy is, I, I strongly, you know, I, I never discount it, right? Yeah. But I strongly doubt it. Given, look, there's a couple, and on that point, you know, what if you know the State Department officially says that? So if it's discovered that the CIA was actually providing support, that's just a big black eye. I also think that the Biden administration really wants to keep Afghanistan on the back um, back pages or off the off the newspaper period. It's it anything mentioned with Afghanistan with respect to the Biden administration merely points to their failures there. So, you know, supporting a resistance would be a tacit admission that its policy to leave was a failure. Now I countries like Tajikistan very likely they're at least allowing the National Resistance Front's leadership to be based there. Also, it's very likely a country like India is providing covert support to the National Resistance Front, even as it's uh, flirting with conducting talks with the Taliban. But I would suspect India to be, you know, it would make a lot of sense for India to be supporting the National Resistance Front. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Bill. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, Bill, let's turn to terrorism now, and let's take ISIS and al-Qaeda one at a time for reasons that that you know well and for reasons that will become obvious to our listeners here. So let's start with ISIS. Where does ISIS in Afghanistan stand today compared to a year ago? The Islamic State in Afghanistan is estimated to have several thousand fighters. This is according to the United Nations sanctions monitoring team. I suspect that's probably right. The Islamic State basically is made up of cast-offs from the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and some other groups that had an issue with how the death of Mullah Omar was handled. The Taliban hid that for two years, and that was a real disaster. For It almost actually led to the dissolution of the Taliban. They were unhappy with that. And also, these are probably more of what I would describe as the red-blooded jihadists, if there's such a thing. You know, I I always describe the difference between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State in very simple terms, right? The Islamic State is caliphate now, right? With, a, with an apostrophe at the end. They want to declare the caliphate, and that's exactly what they did. They declared their caliphate and fight for it. Al-Qaeda was always, we don't declare the caliphate until we get defended. So it's a more patient, we build the, you know, build it and they will come emirate by emirate. And that's the real difference in my mind between the two. The Islamic State in Afghanistan, you know, you get those ones who are, are anxious, you know, don't really agree with al-Qaeda's patient strategy. There's a core support there. I describe them as the Islamic State in Khorasan province, as they're known, to be like a tertiary threat that emanates from Afghanistan. It's it's that Taliban-Al-Qaeda alliance that's really the threat. The Islamic State is able to conduct attacks within inside of Afghanistan, and they largely target soft targets like Shia Hazara, who they hate because they consider to be apostates. The Islamic State's problem is it doesn't build coalitions. There, you know, it's it's my way or the highway. You swear allegiance to our Amir or our Caliph, 
or we'll kill you. That's basically the Islamic State's message. Whereas the Taliban, Al Qaeda, you know, they they band with all of these other groups that are Central Asian and Pakistani terror groups, Lashkari Taiba, Jaish Muhammad, uh, Islamic Movement Uzbekistan. I could go on and on with the alphabet soup of, of groups that operate from, in both Pakistan as well as that are, many are based in Afghanistan today. So the Islamic State doesn't build those coalitions. It won't take state sponsorship, like, for instance, the Taliban and al-Qaeda take state sponsorship from Iran. Pakistan provides state sponsorship from the Taliban. The Islamic State just wouldn't do that. So it's far, to me, a far less of a threat to us in the West, as well as to the in the region as well, because they just don't play well with others. How much of a threat are they to the Taliban? I would describe them as, at the moment, as a nuisance threat. The Taliban survived two decades of U.S. airstrikes of an Afghan military that was trained to fight them, of raids by Afghan commandos, U.S. special forces, NATO special forces. The Islamic State can pull off some occasional suicide bombings, assassinations, but these are a, a pinprick compared to what the Taliban experienced just prior to taking over the country on August 15th, 2021. And are these mostly Afghans or are there some foreigners mixed in? There's, it's a mix. Some of them are Afghan Taliban, former Afghan Taliban, former Pakistani Taliban. Some of them are Central Asian jihadist groups from like from uh, the Islamic movement, Uzbekistan. That group basically split in half. Its religious leader was very upset about how the Taliban hid Mullah Omar's death and he took a large contingent to join the Islamic State. There's some fight Uyghurs from China from that used to be members of the Turkestan Islamic Party. There's also Indians and and others uh, from South South and Southeast Asia. And have they shown any interest in attacks outside Afghanistan? I think they're interested in conducting attacks outside of Afghanistan, but I don't think they have the capacity to do so because they don't have safe haven. They're constantly on the run. They're operating at the cellular level, and they're constantly – the Taliban is take, has been taking the fight to them. Now, a lot of people will say this makes Taliban an effective counterterrorism partner, but I would wildly disagree because of the Taliban's support for al-Qaeda and the other groups. The Taliban are only targeting the Islamic State because the Islamic State opposes Taliban rule. I just haven't seen any indication that the Islamic State's Khorasan province is able to do anything but conduct a localized terrorist attack either against the Taliban or against soft civilian targets. Okay, Bill, let's turn to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and the threat it poses to the United States and our interests worldwide. I want to start by asking you about a set of talking points that the White House put out over the weekend on al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The White House said that the talking points were a summary of a just-completed intelligence community assessment that would be released soon. I don't think we've seen that yet. Just give people a sense of what those talking points said and what your take is on them. Yeah, the, one of the, the big talking points is that there's only there was only a dozen or so legacy al-Qaeda leaders slash operatives who were based in Afghanistan. And it says this, and this is a direct quote probably in Kabul, end quote. And, you know, they're they're not a threat to the United States. They, they can't conduct or plot attacks against the U.S. Well, I would argue if you knew that there was 12 legacy al-Qaeda leaders and were in Kabul while we were there, 
why didn't we take them out before exiting Afghanistan, if that's true? I would argue the numbers are wrong. And Michael, I'm going to tell a real quick story. Sure. We heard from 2010 to 2015 that there were only 50 to 100 Al-Qaeda, core Al-Qaeda leaders in Afghanistan, and they were ineffective. We, that number never changed for six straight years, up until the U.S. killed a top Al-Qaeda leader in Paktika province. He was a member of Al-Qaeda Shura, and then during that raid, they discovered that Al-Qaeda was running two training camps in Kandahar, where the U.S. intelligence was saying Al-Qaeda was only 50 to 100 and confined in northeastern Afghanistan. Kandahar is in the southeast. They raid the camp, kill 150 Al-Qaeda operatives and leaders. One of the U.S. generals who was involved in the raid said it was the largest camp they had seen post 9-11. Uh, I took that to mean the largest camp they'd seen in the world post 9-11. But even if it was Afghanistan, that was pretty striking because we've raided some significant camps in, in, in Afghanistan while we were there. So I'm very, very, very skeptical when it comes to assessments from the U.S. intelligence community about al-Qaeda's strength and presence inside of Afghanistan. Once that camp was raided in Kandahar, it was called Shurabak, once that camp was raided, the U.S. intelligence as a community up the assessment. Well, now it's 200. Look, I didn't believe 50 to 100. Why didn't I believe that number? The U.S. military was reporting on raids of Al-Qaeda from 2007 to 2013. And they were reporting that about 25 to 75 Al-Qaeda fighters and, and commanders and operatives and trainers for the Taliban, et cetera, et cetera, were killed inside of Afghanistan yearly. And yet we have a 50 to 100 number. So none of this made sense to me. I was able to track raids in 24 or 34 of Afghanistan's provinces. So we're telling me you only manned one or two guy, Al-Qaeda guys in, in these provinces. That's how Al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan was tracked out. So, you know, I'm highly skeptical when I see the intelligence communities come out about the – I think it's been – this is an issue that's been highly politicized. Again, it gets back to why is this an issue that is highly politicized? The U.S. can't leave Afghanistan if al-Qaeda has a significant presence there, and the U.S. can't leave Afghanistan if the Taliban-al-Qaeda relationship is strong. So how do we get? How do we downplay that to achieve a policy end of getting out of Afghanistan? We downplay al-Qaeda's significance and relationship with the Taliban. In this case, I think the administration, the Biden administration, is telling us about al-Qaeda's insignificance in Afghanistan because they, you know, to justify their withdrawal, the reasoning for withdrawal. Another key part in that report was they said that al-Qaeda can't, it doesn't have the capacity to launch attacks against the U.S. from Afghanistan. The 9-11 Commission report is very clear, and Michael, as you well know, safe haven is the lifeblood as well as state sponsorship, right, is the lifeblood for terrorist groups. What does al-Qaeda have today in Afghanistan? We know it does because Zawahiri was there and he wasn't alone. He comes with a staff, he comes with a security detail, and he's not the only one there. Al-Qaeda has a safe haven within Afghanistan. Yes, the U.S. was able to launch one strike in one year to kill him, but they have it in Afghanistan, and they have state sponsorship. The Taliban is the Afghan state. So, what that safe haven and state sponsorship gives Al-Qaeda, it gives the ability for its leadership to organize, to rest. They're not being actively hunted like they were. Yes, there was a one drone strike, but show me 10 of them in the next year, and then you might get the, my attention. Because killing one senior leader who's been around since 9-11, that doesn't impress me. It's an impressive individual strike, but it's not a campaign to, to take Al-Qaeda apart. So they have the ability to rest, to regroup, refit. They can get medical attention. They can move their families in. They can begin to recruit. It's a 
boon. The Taliban controlled Afghanistan with Al Qaeda's support is a boon for recruiting. They can recruit, they can train, they can open up training camps, they can indoctrinate, they can plot. And then if they decide to execute an attack, they have everything sitting right there for them to do it. If I'm Al Qaeda, I don't launch an attack against the United States because I don't want to poke the bear. People think that the threat of Al Qaeda is launching a 9-11 style or even a lesser style attack. That's merely a tactic of, of Al-Qaeda. What is, it's a tactic to achieve its, its overarching goal. What is that goal? It's to establish a global caliphate. It launches terror attacks against the United States to force us to withdraw from regions, from countries and regions, so they can launch their insurgencies and take them over. They have it. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan that is one emirate within Al-Qaeda's hoped for caliphate. And that gives them safe haven. It gives them all the capacity to do the things to promote its goal of building the caliphate. In doing that, they're going to continue to attack us to help drive us out of because They believe that the U.S. is weak. They believe that, that the U.S. ultimately will tire of these wars. And Afghanistan showed that we did tire of that war. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Bill, are you suggesting that we're more likely to see al-Qaeda attacks in places like the Middle East, North Africa, than we are the United States, given what you just said? Yes, I do. And that doesn't make them any less of a threat to us. We still have U.S. military personnel overseas, U.S. businesses, U.S. civilians, expats, as well as our allies, right? Our friends and allies, Europe and, and India and across the world, right? To me, al-Qaeda is the greater threat than the Islamic State. It's because of its patience. The Islamic State is a more of an immediate threat. It likes to conduct attacks for its propaganda and recruiting. But I don't think it has a real caliphate-building plan, and al-Qaeda does. And it, it's, and, and al-Qaeda, if it is, al-Qaeda is patient. And that, to me, patient and thoughtful enemies is, is what scares me. And let's, let's face it, 20 years, they were patient for 20 years, with, with, along with the Taliban, to get the U.S. to leave. And as now that the U.S. is out of Afghanistan, they can focus their energies in the Middle East, in Africa, Somalia or Mali. I mean, I, I would put them each name on a coin and flip it. One of those two, not the entire country, but have a, a good significant portion of these countries can become the next al-Qaeda-controlled areas. Keep in mind, Shabab took control of, of southern and central Somalia 
from 2000, I believe it was what, 2007, eight to about 2011, 12, before the United States and the African Union and, and Kenya joined together to, to eject them. And now they, they fought back and their control about, we'd estimate about 40%. American general two years ago said 25% of uh, Somalia is under Shabab control. I'd put that number closer to 40, given what I've seen or given research on this issue. That, these are significant problems. They're not... Just because our desire here in the West among U.S. policymakers is to end the so-called endless wars, what that means is we're ending our involvement in these wars. But the, but our enemy isn't. They get a vote. They're continuing the fight. They want to drive us out of Somalia. The Biden administration just sent more troops back in there after the Trump administration withdrew them in an effort to end the so-called endless wars. The French are leaving Mali. They actually, I believe they have left at this point. And, but the French are in other areas. They're going to continue to target us and our interests until they get what they want. And uh, that is, that to me, and with the, and then we go back to the issue of safe havens, Michael, right? Now they have the ability to plot this and, and not just plot terrorist attacks, but a plot their cal and, and execute their strategy for caliphate building. You know, one of the thoughts I had when I read the White House talking points was that they were making what I call negative assessments, right? They were saying what what's not as opposed to what is. And a what's not assessment, have someone having been an analyst for 33 years, you need a, a lot of information, a lot of intelligence, right, to make a not statement as opposed to an is statement. And I just don't see how we have that amount of intelligence, you know, given that we don't have a presence in that country. That is an excellent point, Michael. Keep in mind, General McKenzie, the previous commander of U.S. Central Command, I believe in December when he testified to Congress, he said, our visibility in Afghanistan is 1% to 2% of what it was when we had boots on the ground before the U.S. withdrawal. And anyone who knows the military knows that that's the best case scenario. That's the, the most optimistic assessment. So the real number is probably about 0.5 to 1%, right? How can we... How can the, the the White House say with and the national security say with such authority about the not, as you said, the what nots here? This Afghanistan has become an information black hole. We must assume the worst, not the best. We must assume that the Al Qaeda Taliban relationship has been strengthened with twenty and, and forged in twenty years of blood and fire. We must assume, given that Zawahiri was there, that lesser but no less important al-Qaeda leaders have begun to seek safe haven in Afghanistan. We have to assume that that number of two, an estimate of 200 al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is blooming and not shrinking after the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban takeover. I could not agree with you more, Michael. So, Bill, talk a little bit about the death of Zawahiri, how important from a CT perspective, and even more importantly, talk about likely successors and, you know, can they bring more life back to this organization? Yeah, first, I don't want to, it was an, a, quite an accomplishment to kill Zawahiri, to, to find him and to kill him. I think Al-Qaeda, its security, his security detachment got a little complacent. Zawahiri himself probably got complacent. The U.S. military said they believed in, I believe it was 2020, that they thought he was in eastern Afghanistan. Yeah, they did. I'm certain that he's been on the run for two decades and probably was, you know, 
taking the shoes off and rubbing his toes in the carpet a little bit to relax. Like he probably thought all was well in the U.S. Well, you, have, it, 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 it tells you how comfortable he felt with the Taliban. It, it does, right? I mean, that is certainly a, an excellent point, Michael. He felt he was comfortable. He felt he was safe. He felt the U.S. didn't have the ability. The U.S. did. But again, one strike does not make a successful counterterrorism campaign you know, prove the success of a you know, campaign. It's one strike. So he's been in command of al-Qaeda for 11 years now, since the death of Osama bin Laden. He was a deputy emir since the founding of al-Qaeda. I, I always say, you know, name me a member of the a president or vice president, a cabinet member, or a, you know, a three or four star general who was you know, an American, right, cabinet member, et cetera, et cetera, who was there on 9-11 who's still in government or is still in the military. The answer to that is zero. Top al-Qaeda leaders or al-Qaeda leaders, fighters, they don't retire. They either die of old age or they're killed in military or counterterrorism operations. That's what happened to Zawahiri. He put his stamp on Al Qaeda for four plus decades and had the, and, and I dismissed the idea that he was insignificant, divisive, and whatnot. Aside from the, the issue with the Islamic State, that look, we don't know if Osama bin Laden himself would have been able to manage relations with Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, which ultimately was kicked out of Al Qaeda. That's the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. There were problems between the two organizations for. I could recall going back to when Zarqawi was alive. So, okay, so he's dead. Who's who's next in line? Well, it's ver- the United Nations Sanctions and Monitoring Report. I put a lot of credit in that. Um, Edmund Fitton Brown, the director of that, he is he's a top notch analyst. They say that it's very likely Saif Al Adel or Abdul Rahman Al Maghrebi. These are both legacy Al Qaeda leaders. Saif Al Adel wanted, you know, former Egyptian military officer been with al-Qaeda since at very least the early 1990s, was their head of their military committee. He's been Zawahiri's deputy leader. It's very, he's a very, he's the very likely choice. Abdul Rahman al-Maghrebi has held numerous positions within al-Qaeda, including the head of its uh, Sahab, which is its media arm. It's a very significant branch of al-Qaeda, as well as the military leader for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Zawahiri's son-in-law. It's also Zawahiri, exactly, Zawahiri's son-in-law. And then also the head of al-Qaeda, and this is interesting, right, but not surprising if you followed this, the head of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and the head of Shabab, which is al-Qaeda's branch in East Africa, are also possible, they're very likely in the line of succession. They're probably not going to take over. Well, people hold this up as, wow, look, that's that's fascinating, except it isn't. The head of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was... Nasser al-Wahashi, before we killed him in the uh, mid-2010s. He was al-Qaeda's general manager and was believed to be in the line of succession. Al-Qaeda has sort of diversified its leadership in response to the drone campaign. People think that this is a weakness of al-Qaeda, but I think it's a strength. It makes it difficult to communicate, yes, but it gives buy-in to the branches. People want to say these affiliates, which I prefer to call branches, which al-Qaeda describes as their theaters, and al-Qaeda doesn't describe itself as a core, but it's general command. This gives buy-in from the branches. It it allows al-Qaeda to protect itself from its leadership being concentrated in one area. So we're going to find out. People are also saying, oh, al-Qaeda hasn't even announced his death. They typically take him. There's a mourning period, and then there's a consultative period where they're going to pick their new leadership. That's very likely what's happening. We'll find out who that new leader is. is. I wouldn't be shocked if it was a dark horse, if it was someone who didn't know. 
it's there is a lot of members of al-qaeda who we who aren't public names who we aren't even aware of yeah so bill your bottom line um at the end of this discussion is that we have not heard the last of al-qaeda from afghanistan no we haven't al-qaeda from afghanistan and globally is in a much stronger position today than it was prior to 9-11. Prior to 9-11, Al-Qaeda really only ha- had a major base in one area in Afghanistan. Now it's throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa, all of Africa, like the Sahel and West Africa, not just North Africa as it was in the early 2000s. It's an organization that adapts. It has its faults. It has its problems. But it's been adaptive. And I only see them growing stronger as the West seeks to disengage from this fight and focus on Russia and China, which I totally understand. Those are key issues, but we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. It was truly a pleasure. Thank you again for having me on. You're welcome. That was Bill Raggio. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.